Over the past decade, I've been studying climate chaos by reading scientific papers and listening to climate lectures accessible to a layperson. There's no good news to be found there. In the last decade, our carbon emission levels are the highest in history, and we have not yet experienced their full impact. If we were to stop emitting carbon dioxide tomorrow, we are still on track for much higher heat for at least 10 years, and we are certainly not stopping our emissions by tomorrow. Some scientists fear a methane burp of billions of tons when a full melt of the summer Arctic ice occurs, something that has not happened for the past four million years. Should such a sudden release of methane occur, the Earth's warming would rapidly accelerate within months. This alone could be the extinction event. This is the climate crisis. I'm Michael Shaw. And I'm Michelle Walter. And that was the voice of Catherine Ingram reading from her extended essay, Facing Extinction. Catherine's been reporting on environmental issues since the 80s, and she's now a major voice bringing client science to public attention. Her current extended essay, which you heard from just then, was published online in February this year. It's now received close to a million downloads. It's been quoted far and wide from HuffPost to Greenpeace to the Financial Times and many more places. In fact, Catherine's personal website crashed when it received 30,000 downloads in one day after she was quoted by the off-grid guy. Michael Mobbs said she is the star that I steer by. Catherine's voice as a guiding light in the current age of climate crisis has been further solidified in November's issue of Dumbo Feather, where she was featured talking about the issues. Well, there's many interesting things about Catherine, but one particular thing that interests me is she's both a social and environmental reporter and has been for many years, but she's also a Dharma teacher, some would say a spiritual teacher, so she's right at the intersection of consciousness and activism. She's written several books, and one of them, In the Footsteps of Gandhi, she got to spend time with and interview the likes of the Dalai Lama, the Thich Nhat Hanh, Desmond Tutu. She was at the forefront of the mindfulness movement in the 70s, but now brings her own message around developing passionate presence into her retreats and Dharma dialogue sessions, both nationally and internationally. And passionate presence is definitely a message we need in these upcoming times. Uh, very excited to have you in, Catherine. I first met you maybe two years ago. and I, Three. Three years ago. Three years ago. Wow. I, and I saw a flyer on a board uh, with testimonials from people like Jack Cornfield, Eckhart Tolle, Leonard Cohen. And I went to your satsangs, your di Dharma dialogues. And soon after that, I came to you to talk about the climate. And I, I, I remember I've shared on this program, I had this uneasy, queasy feeling about what was going on in the environment and I think I came to you to try and get rid of that. <laughs> <laughs> and what you did really was just uh, make me look at it a lot um, clearer and a lot sharper and um, really opened my eyes to how late in the game it was and how bad things actually are, which I feel there's a bit of a waking up now all over the planet. You can't listen to the news, can't sit in a cafe, every time you turn on the television it's on, but you you have been sitting with this uh, for many years. Um, maybe you could just say a little bit about when you came in. You, you call it the dark knowledge. Uh, when did you first come into dark knowledge and how? Yeah. In specific, with regard to the climate crisis, it's only been about 10 years. Although I had a sense 
I've always had a sense ever since I can remember. I remember as a child, I said to my father, what happens if we run out of water? And my father said, we'll never run out of water. And even then I knew that didn't sound true. <laughs> so I've always had a sense that things were going awry. <laughs> I've, I've been a news junkie for my whole life. I was a journalist for many, many years. And I sp specifically focused in my journalism on on activism, consciousness and activism. So I was inevitably put into the world of things going awry and people trying to fix them. But I've, I've always had a sense that, that it, it was starting to be this, you know, rolling thunder happening in the, on the planet. Mm. And now it's really gone, you know, through, through the roof uh, with regard to how, how quick it's happening. Mm. It's, it's, yeah, mm. it's, um, so for, for 10 years, I've been looking at the data, <clears throat> about five or six years, I began actually speaking about it publicly, I've spoken about it at a few conferences years and years ago. I wrote a piece in the Huffington Post 10 years ago, called Getting Through the Night at the End of Days. And I wanted to write a book, I thought about writing a book for years, but I didn't feel people were ready. Mm. And in fact, Leonard, Cohen gave me an incredible grant to write the book years ago. <laughs> um, yeah, gave me a $10,000 grant. He said, go write that book. Hmm. And um, But and I just didn't feel it was the time. Hmm. So... You're talking, when you say the book, you're talking about what ended up as the extended essay yes, being Facing Extinction. Exactly, right. Many people may not know uh, what, what that's actually about, but I think the title gives a lot of it away. Yes, <laughs> it's the preview. I mean, you go, uh, you go right out on, uh, on what some people would call the edge and I think what you would call the logical conclusion. Yes. So what brings you to that logical conclusion because a lot of people are saying so many different things about this but you you know you 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 see things very clearly and you're not afraid to look at things directly so what brings you to that vision the science the, the data and one of the frustrations i have and you too might have this a similar frustration is that there are a lot of people talking about all these other possibilities and all these yeah. other things and and but they're not looking at the real data or they're not looking at a lot of the more disturbing data. They might be looking at some of the data, but yeah, I mean, you know, here we are, we've just had in the last few days, we've broken all records now for heat in this country. The national average just broke this week, but the thing is it's probably gonna break again in the coming week, mm -hmm. and we're just entering summer. Mm -hmm. They're talking about having to perhaps relocate people living in the Northern Territory, because it's becoming uninhabitable. I just read this morning that off the west coast of Australia, the waters are so hot right now that there's huge fish die-offs. This is going on every day, and it's not just here, of course. There are many, many areas of crisis all over the world. It's just getting too damn hot. Mm. And of course, the Arctic is an incredibly uh, troubling situation because the permafrost and the ice are melting and the methane that is under that is really a massive threat for us and it's not going to take it's only going to take about one percent of the known methane to come out mm. and it's the what's holding it down is melting mm. so 
and and just to you know in, in case anyone's listening that doesn't understand the dangers of methane um, 86 more powerful 86 times more powerful than co2 over a 10-year time frame and it's fast acting unlike carbon which takes 10 years mm. to come to full fruition of its heat methane comes to its heat in a few months so it's going to come out in massive amounts mm. it's 86 times more powerful than carbon and it's fast acting and i know um michelle and i were talking uh, offline uh, about the, um, that scientist from the sea at the cop 25 mm. uh, i can't remember his name carter carter who was saying actually where it, it started right mm. yeah, yeah it's like a methane bomb going off and that's one of the things I notice when I listen to climate news, is there seems to be some people who are speaking about the issue are talking about it almost like it's an opportunity for growth yeah. and we can change our society and everything's going to be wonderful. And then there's people like yourself and maybe Dar Jamal and Jem Bendel who are presenting evidence as well. Like your, your essay is brilliant in the sense that you uh, researched and you've referenced all the different studies. You're not just saying this is what I think is going to happen. It's like, hey, look at this, follow this, follow this. If the Arctic ice melts, this is what's going to happen. If we run out of food, this is what's going to happen. So and it's like, then add in the social unrest, yeah. the overpopulation, the, the many, many areas that are emptying out and refugees are fleeing all over the world trying to get into places where there's still food and water. Mm. And what's going to happen when all of those places are just overtaxed, overburdened, can't even feed their own people? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so important for us to really know what we're actually facing here. Of course, you know, people will say, well, no one can really know. And surely I, I can't know for sure, of course, you know. It's just that this is th the trajectory. So, you know, the horse is riding in a certain direction, right? Mm. And it's like the, the old saying, those, those hoofbeats you're hearing are probably not ze zebras, you know. <laughs> this, this is how... <laughs> This is how it's going, and it's only going faster. That's where most of the um, miscalculation is, is that yes. we're not calculating it big enough. Even I didn't. And, um, and then to your point, too, I think we get lulled, and we want to be lulled. Even I sometimes just go into a little pretense on a pretty day, and people mm. are at the cafes, and I go into a little, you know, little vacation of denial, you know. Mm. But a vacation of denial. Yes, yeah. so well put. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but then I'm, you know, I spoke to my friend Michael Mobbs in Sydney yesterday, mm. and he was saying this is like living in a crematorium where yeah. you're breathing the smoke of dead creatures, yeah. like all the little bush creatures that are in that smoke, the, yeah. the d molecules of those dead creatures. Is, he described it so so arrestingly. Uh, it's like living in a crematorium. Yeah.
it, it looks like you're just holding this really negative position. Mm. And I've spent a lot of my life developing positive attitudes to myself, to things, to accepting life. But in this situation, it almost, it, it almost feels like living in a fantasy. Well, what's happened for me over this time is that, you know, and I would try to speak about this years ago to anyone who would be willing, mm. and I would get that kind of, you know, feedback or blowback or mm. kind of, you know, patting you on the back saying, don't worry, and things like that. And, yeah. for, and for those who aren't waking to it or who are thinking there's some way out, what I've come to see is people just need their own time to adjust to this, you know, pretty much the worst pill to swallow and and yet you and I we we mm. all three mm. we three know that you can't really fight with reality of course and and there has to be part of the processing of this has to be looking at it in a real way mm. and then working with it from there i often describe it as sort of like being in hospice only with a still healthy body I know for myself and my own struggle, and I, I feel like I struggle with this daily. Mm. And uh, sometimes I deny it, um, sometimes I'm acceptance of it, and sometimes I, I just am full of rage at the billionaire class, at the oil executives. But if I'm not being angry at them, I'm being angry at myself for buying plastic utensils or you know sushi with little plastic soy sauce mm. bottles and getting in my car, getting on planes. So I can get stuck in these cycles. If I'm, if I'm embracing it, I can get stuck, stuck in cycles of uh, blame. I, I, I'd love to hear what you think about that. It feels like a trap, but an easy trap to fall into. And, of course, it's one of the stages of grief is anger, of course, you know, typical feeling. Um, with regard to, I always ask the question, how far back should we lay the blame? Because we created a civilization, each step of the way was for what looked like a better life. And we kept, you know, we didn't realize when they started digging up fossil fuels back in the day, a long time ago, or burning coal or any of the num any number of the destructions that have gone on. It was always for some sort of sense of progress and for life and for so how far back do we go agriculture allowed us to explode our population do we do we wipe out agriculture do we take that off the you know on our wish list on our woulda coulda shoulda list how far back i always say you'd have to go all the way back to the big bang you know it's like this was the rollout this was the evolutionary rollout there's no way we can tell pull out one thread and say oh we just shouldn't have done that Right. We, it, mm, go ahead. Yeah, it's really interesting what you say because, you know, I myself as I have identified certain things where I feel we've gone wrong, like um, agriculture and particularly capitalism. But um, in an interview that Michael did with Stan Rushworth, I found it really interesting. He talked about two ways of thinking and that our thinking had changed from being connected to the earth and then to developing what he calls post-colonial thinking but in some ways it's that individualism that's a separation thinking of separation that really resonated with me because I thought there's somehow that we're not we've, we've we're not living in harmony or in connection with the earth and this to me looks like the logical conclusion yes that. but Again, this was the rollout of the evolutionary path. 
mm-hmm. right? So I think where you get caught is thinking we should have stayed in that other, you know, yes, that I do. kind of, yeah, utopia. That, that utopia, <laughs> yeah. right? where, where we were just one with everything. We were just part of nature and we weren't in this kind of myth of human supremacy, as Derek Jensen calls it. But that isn't what happened, right? That isn't how it went. So we part of this Part of this understanding of no blame is to see one of my other friends, James Kunstler, he says that his view of history is how it happened was that it just seemed a good idea at the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yes. At the time, whenever that new development, that new thing, that, you know, all of the ways that we changed nature's, you know, natural order to accommodate yeah. our desires and our great our yeah. great civilizations. Um, it's amazing. I, it, what comes to me is a quote I've heard that we're no different from yeast. And it's, you know, that yeah. every, every biological organism just follows this trajectory. Yes. Where we kind of destroy our habitat because we can't figure it out any differently. And in my essay, I talk mm. about the great filter theory mm. that many... Can you ast- explain that? Yes. That's a great so theory. The, so the, many of the astrophysicists subscribe to this as a possibility. Um and what that theory says is that elsewhere, there's first of all, there's a phenomenally high um, p- potential for life on other planets. That just when you understand, when you understand how many billions and billions of suns that are in a certain proximity to certain types of planets that are similar to our own, it would make you think there's lots of potential for life to have developed on those planets. It's called the Goldilocks zone. Well, how come we haven't heard from them if Mm. they've been around for, you know, who knows, billions and billions of years? So one of the theories is that at the point that they developed to a certain technological state, they too wiped themselves out. Mm. And the the theory is that any kind of... um, development like that would have required throwing heat back on its own planet. Even if you decided not to use nuclear, let's say, even if you said, no, that's too dangerous, you just went with everything else that, you know, is the ways that we get ourselves around. Uh, The theory is that they would have wiped themselves out, and that's why we haven't heard from them. So it's kind of inevitability to it again. Yeah, that would be the the conclusion of the great filter theory. Mm. So it filters out the Mm. potential for... Mm. So there may be some that are further along than, than we are, but... It's so humbling to think yeah. that we're not as smart as what we think we are. Yeah. Mm. yeah and that well, we're not in as much control as we think we are. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things that happens as, as I sort of settle into that question, um, which happens many times across each day, uh, there's still part of me that goes, this can't be true. This can't actually be happening. And I know um, Stephen Jenkinson does talk a lot about uh, we're a society completely in denial of death and limitation. And, you know, I'm part of that society. I probably have that as well. Um, Because once you start going to this inevitability, you start having to look directly at your own death. Yes. Yeah. And and perhaps on a very different timeline than you were looking at it before, if you were looking at it. Mm -hmm. And I think for all of us who are Dharma students, uh, we've had a certain relationship to our own personal death, but this is a completely different order of things. And so, 
Yeah. It is especially, I mean, you say that in your article, this is like, it's not just the death of a child, it could be akin to that, but it's actually, um, this time it's all the little children, all the animals, all the plants, all the ice. It really hit me how precious and delicate this is. Like, I've grown up under this whole idea of continual growth and advancement, everything's on tap, and I haven't really appreciated the particular point in history and time that we're in. Yes, well, one of the things I've been speaking a lot about lately is that part of what we're struggling with is the disparity between our privilege and our assumptions of longevity Mm. and our having our grand party Mm. and the reality that is now hitting home, which has already hit home for most of the poor people of the world. They, they're living in much more tenuous ways, much more fragility. Um, but now it's our turn to be understanding the fragility of this, of this life. And, and, and that assumption that we've always had is, is a bit of a disadvantage now because it's part of our trauma. You know, it's part of our, you know, realizing that we may not be able to just turn on the tap and get water and all those and many worse things than that. Then I studied with this beggar. He was filthy, he was scarred by the claws of many women. He had failed to disregard No fable here, no lesson No singing meadowlark Just a filthy beggar guessing What happens to the heart? I was always working steady But I never called it art It was just some old convention, like the horse before the cart. I had no trouble betting on the flood against the ark. You see, I knew about the ending. What happens to the heart? One of the things I'm really interested in, which I know Michael is as well, is this idea of the end of legacy. So if there is a human extinction, or there's certainly going to be massive, massive change and and social disruption, it's not going to be the same. What's the point in leave? What are we leaving behind? You know, it's a wonderful thing that you address. I wonder if you could talk yeah, a bit about that. Yeah, I have a section that. called "The End of Legacy" because you know most most human lives, it, it, there is a por- part of the life that is thinking of the future, whether you're going to be there or not. You're leaving a name, or you're leaving children, or you're leaving some kind of body of work, and you're, you know, you're you're wanting to have a sense that you were here, and so a lot of your thoughts and your plans and your actions are are based on that assumption. And desire and that I would say is off the table um, yeah. so that means you're living very much for the present and for the beings you're touching in this time that you're with and I think the primary value which is that the only thing that actually matters that you're going to leave is the love in the hearts of anybody else who knew you mm. and so you can just stay with that simple mm. impulse mm. Yeah. also just to sort of add in here none of this uh 
should stop people preparing in any way they can. Sure. Getting closer to the earth, growing yeah. their own food, etc., etc. Et yes, I've been saying, Michael, I've been saying it's like Warsaw Ghetto time, mm. you know. The Warsaw Ghetto held out for as long as they could, and life happened in that time, probably a whole lot better than the next phase, but that could be what this is now, mm. that we prepare as best we can, mm. we, we do whatever it takes to become much more local, to think about growing drought-resistant types of food, figure out water and conservation and all kinds, all kinds of forms of security. Many, many different components to this. Mm. And many people here in this shire are thinking about these things. We're very lucky to live in this shire. Yep. Mm. Yeah, which is not to underestimate the size of the ask here. I, mm. I know um, uh, you yourself went through a journey as you were coming to this understanding of very quite a physical journey. Yes. I, I was, as it became more and more clear to me, and again, I'm going to say, I don't have a crystal ball, so I'm just going with what I see mm. as when I look at the evidence, this is what I see. So as I became aware that my little, all the little kids in my family, of them, all little still, um, would probably not have a full life. And and this was years ago when I came to this this feeling. It's probably less even than, than that at that time. Um, I got shingles. Hmm. Shingles is a stress disease, hmm. and I got shingles, a bad, bad case that ended, ended up in the hospital. Um, because my, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't. I couldn't. I didn't have a one th break of five minutes in the day <sighs> that I wasn't in a kind of terrible f state of anxiety and inner panic. Mm. And um, so I was laying in a bed after I got out of the hospital for a month um, in upstate in New in the Hamptons, actually in New York, and um, and j I couldn't move around and. Um, I had to come to some kind of, mm. yes, I had to come to some kind of at least, okay, this is it. Mm. You know, kind of like the scene in the Titanic, you know. Mm. <laughs> it was just that. It was like you mm. come to a moment where that's, you have to basically say, okay, I, I accept the truth. Mm. I don't have to like it, mm. and I don't, mm. but mm. I can accept mm. the reality of it. But also in the acceptance of this message, uh, there's some real gifts that can be had. So can you talk to that a bit, Catherine? Yeah. In my own case, I can speak to my own direct experience. Um, my priorities are getting really clear. Yeah. I really don't sweat the small stuff, although yeah. I've heard that phrase for decades. Mm -hmm. I am really kind of at the point of living that. I'm allowing so much more time to appreciate things. I'm taking things more slowly. I'm not just frittering away my days on nonsense. Um, I'm so loving my people. I'm heartbroken by all the little creatures and what they're going through. Um, so for me, it has been, although it has a very tragic component and mm. a lot of sorrow mm. and tears that come easily, mm. um, it also has been, I've never felt more awake. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. And what a you know, what a moment to be in if indeed we are facing extinction. If that is the case, to be living here at the end of this long human journey is mm. 
unbelievable and to see the world waking up yeah albeit maybe too late but who knows but to see this coming together mm. like nothing would have brought a world community together mm. Mm. Um, like this yes. you know it's very even if for just one brief spark that's right mm. yes and so it is it's like we're at this weird we're coming to this apex mm. of of consciousness but possible with it extinction well i loved um the analogy that you made um, a little earlier it's like someone in hospice and uh they know that they only have a certain amount of time to live and in that time many things can open up in a yes, lifetime absolutely so so many times in those kinds of circumstances people have deep forgiveness they have healings in their families they live those last months or days or weeks or whatever it is to be they live it in a different way and so we can take the lesson without having to be actually in the hospice itself um, and really understand that this is the moment we can either make as beautiful as possible or we can collapse in anger and fear and mm. trauma mm. and panic yeah. And I think there will be a fair bit of that, but it also goes to why those of us who have had some time to adjust to this hmm. and process it and come to an acceptance of at least the strong possibility, why we can be a shade tree for others. <laughs> <laughs> 